You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimal of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! This week we talked to David Abraziz, who is a legendary drummer from the band Pearl Jam for, in my opinion, the time that mattered for the 10 tour for verses for Vitology, basically when Pearl Jam was one of the best bands in the entire world. Yeah, such a great interview. It was so good to talk with David. We recorded this a while back. We were using Zoom and uh, towards the end of the episode, you're going to notice some audio issues with David's feed, but it's not too bad. We cleaned it up the best we could. Uh, my internet straight up drops <laughs> out a few times, but that's not a big deal. We were we were getting some outer space sounds from David, considering we haven't identified where his location is, but it sounds far away. But he was like opening up about Pearl Jam and Guns N' Roses and his like ph- philosophies on life. And Stories then it's like Eddie Vedder Corey, and Axl Rose. Yep. Hello. Hello. Yeah. And that's when I like gave Eddie Vedder stitches and it's like, hello, Corey. Corey, you there? Hello. So, so yes, bear bear with us, bear with us on this episode. It's, it's got a ton of great stories and a lot of good info. We recorded this one back in June on Um, our eight tracks. Yeah. And, and, uh, so we, and we have a few with David. So this is, this is one of many. Hope you guys dig it. At one point we do reference another episode with uh, Adam Gilbert of Starset, which has not come out yet, but it will be coming soon. So stay tuned. It's almost like we had nothing better to do during this shit. So, you know, you got 2020 into like listening to crap. We're like Quentin Tarantino in Pulp Fiction, you know, like the first scene's really like the seventh scene and Bruce Willis is already dead. You know, you know what I'm saying. So, ladies and gentlemen, Corey Beza just got in 2020. His router needs to be reset. Comcast, Xfinity, wherever the fuck you are, get on that shit because we got our our good buddy David Abraziz, who's calling us in from an undisclosed location. And the always beautiful, the always eloquent, the always articulate, the the second half of Shabrock, who had a birthday yesterday, not the short part, the Brock part. Um, Siobhan Cronin! And and we're waiting for Corey. Um, We are uh, the show 2020, which is all about, um, you know, living in a fucking bunker, which is what I'm sure David, myself and Siobhan have done for the last, uh, you know, two to three decades. But I'm just going to throw it down to David. David, what have you been doing for the last 26 years? Because Wikipedia doesn't seem to know. That's a long period of time to ask. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I keep erasing it. When did we lose Ben already? <laughs> well, it said, it said you live in Mesquite, Texas, but I don't know, man. Like, yeah, I, when I, mean, I talk, what's going on? I like on? that address. I, I, it's just a cool name, Mesquite. Mesquite. It is. Like the barbecue yeah. sauce? No, like a tree. Like a tree. Like yeah, a tree. Mesquite. <laughs> yeah. so, 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 David, what, what, what the hell is going on with you, man? Like, because I, I didn't know, it was, like, I'm, we've become friends, and, like, a lot of people are like, how the hell do you know this guy? But, like... You're such an interesting person doing such so many interesting things, but like I would never know that the guy I listened to growing up is the guy that's before me now. What's what's going on with you, dude? What do you want the world to know? Wow. Man. I know it's yeah. deep. Smoke that. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, same as always, just following my heart and music. Thank you, Corey. Your heart we and music. We have Corey back in the room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I had the studio for years. I lived in the desert for years and blah, blah, blah. Music's always still been, always the core of all of it. So, and my daughter and wow, lots of stuff. You seem to be like one of the most music guys that I've ever met in my entire life because um, you just seem to love it so much. And I got to tell you, when I get all your tracks, it sounds like you really 
hate your drums. So you love playing drums, but like you hit the drums so hard. I can hear you. You tell me like I cracked <laughs> 10 cymbals and normally I would call um, shenanigans on a, on a statement like that. But when you get your drum tracks back from David, they, they literally sound like you have a problem with your drums. What's up with that? I'm not going to try to be too clever. I just love beating the shit out of my drums. <laughs> and I can't help it. I always, I always think I'm taking it easy. And then, um, yeah, notice that something's broken or, or I listen back to the tracks and go, geez. Yeah, man. It's like cannon shots when they, when we get those tracks back. Come I'm glad you like them. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you did a great job. we have to do close great. mic recording because I live in like a shoebox. But as you can see behind mm -hmm. you, um, I was like, so David, how come you get the sound so good? And you're like, I don't know, 10,000 foot ceilings and like room mics only. <laughs> like what that, are you explain to people what gets you? Because if you listen to David and he's on a song called The Garden of Earthly Delights on chapter two, which is coming mm -hmm. out for Lost Symphony, who's our sponsor, lostsymphony.com. David, first off, not only destroys the group, but uh, he, it really sounds like John Bonham in the sense that it, you went to a castle and that you set up a fucking microphone in the perfect like place and it just sounds great because Mike, because uh, we're miking up and down the bottom parts, top parts, rooms, the one to three rule. And you're like sending me five tracks to sound better than anything I've ever done. Well, okay. That track was actually recorded in a full tile and cement room with a tall ceiling and on a $300 accent, Ludwig accent drum set. Really? Wow. Yeah. So, uh, so it goes to say exactly. that a, pa a painter <laughs> can't blame his paints, right? It's just about getting the, the sound I hear, uh, you know, getting the drum that gets the sound, you know? And that particular track, I just heard some cheap ass drums. <laughs> I mean, listen, I know that I give the connotation of cheapness and I, I get it, but you know, you don't have to <laughs> stick it to me that no, way. Not cheap sounding, just, you know, it, yeah, actually cheap sound, but recorded well and mixed ex exceptionally well. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Corey. Thank you, Corey. So yes, yeah. thank you. So let's just jump off into the deep end because first off, I want to say that I, Warren, have been pronouncing your name wrong again for 26 years. Um, but that my first ticket con the first concert I ever wanted to go to, I bought tickets for the versus tour with Pearl Jam and you guys canceled. Um, and I, it was, I was so heartbroken. And in fact, I didn't get to see, uh, Pearl Jam until years, um, later. Um, but, but, but that Sorry. was, um, at, at one point Pearl Jam was the biggest band in the fucking world. And I remember thinking to myself that like, you guys were like superhuman. So I'll give you an example. Um, I used to tape radio broadcasts on my little mono boom box because I don't, I'm sure you remember and everyone remembers here, um, but maybe some of our listeners don't. I would take my little high bias cassette and use my mono boom box and I would record the radio. And my first radio broadcast ever was you guys live in Atlanta, Georgia. You started off with uh. release. And I remember my brother and I being so excited that we knew the song. We're like, okay, this is release. And we were writing down the, the set list. <laughs> Um, at, at, as, at like 14 or 15 going, maybe mm. even younger than that going, this is holy shit. And then we're timing the songs. We're like, did they play a really long version of porch? Holy shit. Did you hear that drum bass guitar thing in the middle? And it was the first time as, as someone listened to the radio, I said to myself, I want to see this band live. Fuck these recordings. Like this band, what they do needs to be experienced. And, uh, what was that time like for you, dude? Because like it seems like it was the for me as a child, it was like Michael Jackson and then Pearl Jam. <laughs> well, it was amazing. It was um, you know, because that was the point was to to just to create good music and play the shit out of it, you know. And um, yeah, I mean, it was the most really organic, easy, natural thing to do. I just, you know, did my best every time I was behind my kit or a part of anything and just, you know, tried to manage the rest of it the best I could, interviews and shit like that. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it was incredible. And like, just the story you're telling, like those things just, it just blows my mind, you know? 
I mean, but I was aware of that. That's what I was kind of shooting for during that time. Cause that's what inspired me to, to, to decide that's what I wanted to do was seeing triumph live and the lights came on and everybody was doing this. And I was like, to the kickball, I was like, wow. <laughs> Yeah. So that's, that's something that interests me. And we, we had another, actually the drummer from my band on our, our last episode. And so I'm obviously I come from a totally different world of classical music, but I'm fascinated by how people get to where they are. So maybe we can actually rewind from that point. And how did you get started playing drums or what, what pushed you into music or what were some of your early experiences? All the way back to yeah. Connecticut days. All the way back yeah. to the beginning. I well, that was just in Connecticut, I, right? You're from yeah, Connecticut. Yeah. 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 Sanford. I, in, in East Hartford, I destroyed most of my dad's tools and anything that I could hit something with that would create a sound. It just, he come, he came home one night and I was sitting on the porch with his hammer and it was a cement porch and I shipped a bunch of it away, but it was because when I hit it, my ears went thump, thump. So it was like, tank, thump, thump, tank, thump, thump. And, <laughs> and from there it, it, um, I don't know. I just got really, I think it was the way music affected my mom that started me. It, it being fascinated by because she would dance around the house and, and, you know, it was like the best time, you know? And so that made me pay more attention to it. And I guess through the period of emotional upheaval of moving and just growing up, um, moving from the Northeast to the, to North Carolina and all this stuff, it just, music just, you know, the words fell in the right place at the right time and it became a soundtrack and a teacher and all these things. And, and it just basically, you know, carried me through a lot of decisions, but it, it just inspired me to, to just want to create, you know? So, that's incredible. and I think it was the way it made me feel. I just wanted to, it was like that to me would be success. Did it really turn you on? Did it knock you off of your feet? <laughs> um when i got it right it did mm -hmm. yeah so david was there right. was there a clear transition from um the drums and music in general being like just something you felt that you wanted to do to being something that you wanted to make a career out of um no i just hoped that the career would would happen yeah you know i i always worked hard mm -hmm. um but, you know, as far as getting into the industry, I knew it was just going to be a matter of right place at the right time. So I always just tried to stay prepared, you know, and that was easy because all I did was play music. So, yeah, that's you know, amazing. So, so many people have said very similar things. And I think that's like a really important point for people to think about is that, yeah, you just have to always stay prepared. And a lot of it's about putting yourself out there. Or, you know, you think the long, doing as much do, as you can. Do you think the long hair helped staying prepared? <laughs> because I feel like if I saw you with like a nice crew cut uh, or even like this, the star set cut, like so what Adam has um, in star set, <laughs> I wouldn't hire you as a drummer because I would just immediately say this guy doesn't live it. <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> I'm afraid of scissors. <laughs> I thought you weren't going to be touching on stuff like that. Oh man, oh, you know. Um, actually, you know. So I do want to, but before we go into the deeper stuff, I want to talk about something funny because we uh, we joke around about how about how we. Well, so first off, my man crush is Nino Betancourt from Extreme, who I have a love hate <laughs> relationship, but mostly ah, love. Ah, oh wait, 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 wait! I know no one ever interrupts you, but I'm gonna go for it. Thank you. During uh, during the festival, Ross Gilda, the first time Pearl Jam was there, Nuno Benincourt, he was the guitarist for Extreme, yeah? Yes, with Paul Geary, who's one of our good friends, the drummer, and Gary the late, Sharon. Great, the late, great Scully, he was my drum tech <laughs> slash guitar tech at Pearl Jam's beginning. Um, he and some of the other folks sawed off about a quarter inch of the stool's legs. So when they got up to sing their that big more, more than, than words, words yeah, they would bring out just the two stools yeah. for more than words, and then have them come back on stage, Gary Sharon and Nuno Betancourt, to do their little duo. While Paul, yeah, the Paul stool and Pat got plucked in the back, had it was about a quarter of an inch cut off. So the stools the whole time. Oh, <laughs> How many people were there? About two hundred fifty thousand. Oh, that's great. <laughs> That's great. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, oh my God. You know what's funny is I feel like I said that to Nuno, and, like, Nuno's like, I don't think I remember that. And then, like, Paul oh. Geary Paul Geary was like, 
oh, I, I feel like I, this this has like a ring of truth to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's a repressed it's, memory. He went, like, he went like that. He went like that with his hair to get it off the guitar strings at one point. And that's when he went. <laughs> <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like a very Nuno thing to do. His hair is beautiful in Portuguese and long. Yeah. Like, anyway, actually, you have beautiful hair, too. Show. In fact, I found out this the other day that you're you're part Native American. Maybe it explains yeah, I the Samson-like hair. I guess. <laughs> Well, it hasn't changed since 1991. Explain my scissors. So I gotta, I gotta ask you. Um, I'm sure it's a trigger point. I feel like this is Fight Club because I know multiple people that have played in the band Guns N' Roses, and oh, yeah. and, and, and and you played with them for like I want to say what a half decade or whatever. And there's nothing. There's nothing other than lots of internet tapes or whatever. I'm sure to show what, what the no. fuck is going on with guns no, absolutely like, what the heck what happened um it was fascinating man i'll actually i'll tell you um oh my god thank you my lawyer and his lawyer were the same lawyer blah blah blah, 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 blah. he had his guru looking at my pictures for a few years i guess the time was right so he asked my lawyer to ask me if i was interested in in coming out and then we spoke on the phone you know four or five nights a week for a couple hours at a pop. What's a phone call for, like with Axl Rose? What is, what is well, we did that about? for months. We did that for months on end. So before what's we that like? Get, fill us in. Cause I don't understand this guy at all. It was, it, it was cool. I mean, actually, you know, um, I considered him a friend. He was uh, a fascinating dude, fun to talk to on the phone. I don't think he did it very often back then. <laughs> I don't know if he does now, but it was cool. It was interesting. You know, um, I felt good enough about it and excited about what he wanted to do uh, with Guns N' Roses um, that it was real intriguing So it, and, and incredibly challenging because he wanted the band to be bigger than it was. And it's like, wow, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to take some work. But the band that was, was there when I showed up, <laughs> my audition, I just thought, you know, I'd heard these songs enough on the radio. I didn't really like them that much. Um, it's like the Pearl Jam stuff, you know? But in the band, I wouldn't have listened to it, you know? But it was, um, I just figured I'd get it because, you know, as soon as that guitar part, oh, yeah, that. Okay, great. I bought a cowbell and everything. And um, <laughs> it's more cowbell, David. <laughs> and I, I got there, and, and um, Axel came in late, and then he just said, you know, and this is after we'd, you know, gotten to know each other fairly well. <laughs> he came in, told some jokes, and then he, he... Wait, what's an Axl Rose joke? Do you remember an Axl Rose joke? Like, no. how does he break the ice? No, I just remember that he was looking at me like this, and he said, I noticed you laugh at all my jokes. And, then, <laughs> and the room got silent. Like, air left the room, the huge room. And I, I just said, you know, I don't want to get fired. So, <laughs> so honest. And I love that, it. That, that broke the ice, and... and um, then he, he said, oh, so why don't you and Duff run down these songs? It's felt like shit. <laughs> Just bass and drums. Oh, God. Wow. Uh, so we did. And it was cool. But it, yeah, but I, I expected, you know, to hear some of those guitar parts that were telling me what to do. But it worked out. It was really good. And then we started writing music that was nothing like Guns N' Roses. It was me and Podboy doing a double drum thing. And... Guitarist from Nine Inch Nails, Robin Fink. Yeah, yeah. It was. A, I mean, the band was insane, but it certainly wasn't. It wasn't. It, it wouldn't have been. Are a there, are there like six hundred hours of tape of this that, like, one day could surface? That, like, when Axel's not here anymore, it could be like a print situation. Oh, there's no. There's no way in hell that Axel would ever let anything I was a part of surface. No, I'm saying like when wow. when when it's all over, like a print situation where Prince goes. No. No, 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 no. I bet if you if you mentioned my name, you'd probably get fired. Why? Why? So wait a minute. Is he triggered by you? Because most people, like, if you say bump, like, talk to Bumblefoot about Guns N' Roses. Like, I don't, like, I don't think. You know, like, people I don't like, know. I, I hope he's not triggered by me. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I wish our relationship would have continued, but it was just where I was at at the time, having gone through, you know, it was a really intense thing, having my manager in the band getting fired. That was just so weird and then to, to so wait a minute your manager your and, manager got fired like wait no when i got when i got fired from pearl jam oh, my man. manager was just disappears like you know it was like this huge wall came up oh, was, yeah. mm. and so 
thinking about entering back into that arena, like, okay, the other biggest band in the world, uh, first thing is talking to their manager and him telling me, well, you can't talk to Axel, you got to talk to me. And then I talk to Axel and he tells me, and then I talked and it was like, uh. yeah. So I got Axel's phone number and called him up. That was really funny. <laughs> well, well, can we, can we relive that moment? Like, so ring, ring, oh, ring. Yeah. You know, David's calling <laughs> Axel. Hi, uh, Axel Rose here. Uh, What's going on? No, Who is no. this? That, was, that wasn't it. <laughs> Not even close. How the fuck you um, get this number? Uh, his personal assistant. Well, it, I got the number and a, and a, and a you know, good luck from the manager. <laughs> and then um, I called and his assistant answered and I said, hi, it's Dave Abersey's calling for Axel. And it was just silence. <laughs> And she stuttered a little bit and said, uh, hold, hold on. So I waited, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes or so. <laughs> and then it was like, hello, why are you calling me? <laughs> I said, hey, Axel, it's Dave. I just wanted to see what was up. So you going to play some music? <laughs> and it was about 20 minutes later. We, it, it felt like, you know, he eased up and he wasn't so afraid so of you have appreci- Do you think he had appreciation for the fact that nobody ever says anything to him and maybe, like, you just busted his balls a little bit? Like, give me that motherfucker's what? number. Yeah, I, I, I think I was friendlier than that, but, yeah, I, I, I think it, 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 at first he, like, was like, okay, you know, but I think it was just, we just got along so well. It, yeah. it, you know, it was easy. And then um, one day he told it's me so it easy. was... Trusted me, trusted me to, he was the captain of the ship and he was going to, he wanted to go down below and go to sleep. And he, he wanted me to take the boat. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. So is he really a vampire? Me. Is that what he's saying? That like he goes to sleep, does he sleep in like a vampire coffin? And then you go right into the I, iceberg like the Titanic? All I know is he gets pissed and yells at people on the phone. But <laughs> he, when I, he, started asking me, you know, about white leather, if I'd be into it, and then uh, and then uh, You look like you have strong opinions about white leather. Well, it just just wasn't I I was just thinking maybe we'd make a record before we decided what I was going to be fucking wearing, you know what I mean? So interesting. Plus, plus I wasn't really that interested in what he wanted me to wear, (laughs) actually. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned it. it. It was interesting. You mentioned he said that he wanted to make the band bigger than what it was. What, what yeah. do you think he meant by that? And, you know, in, in terms of I, image or like reaching a different audience or the type of music like that's interesting. I, really, I think he wanted to I think he wanted to make a record and have an experience where he could look to the other guys and just go. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so see, I told you drives I people. It. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was an interesting it was a trip, but he was really trying hard. Um, and he was at the rehearsals and, um, yeah, but it was, it was, it was really a strange way of doing things that whole trip, but he wanted to just go down to Rio and, you know, we could just go and play for a week and make, wait, you, you know, play 20, the rock and Rio festival. Go make 25 million. It didn't matter. We could just go play as guns and roses for a week. And that's when I started thinking, ah, eh, I think I have that bootleg. I got to go back and listen to it. That's you that played in the first rock. No, 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 no. I'm saying he was saying we could just pop down and do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it just started hitting me really weird. And, and then the manager told me that just to hang in there because eventually he would tire of it and hire the rest of the guys back and it would be my in. And that's when I said I had to go. Interesting. So you feel like he was motivated more by fame maybe than the music at well, that, the time? No, Axel's just Axel. He's a, he's a star. He's a, he's, he is who he is. I think that just the whole behind the scenes, how his manager told me just to hang in there because Axel's going to burn out of this idea and then get slashed and everybody back and that'll be my in. And just like that kind of just hit me wrong. I, you know, yeah. I like the, you know, I like the, the, when Pearl Jam, when we were first going through, it was like a really close knit team, like the crew, everybody. And um, yeah, I, feel like I just that's I can't, huge. Yeah, when did you I start mean, getting a strange. I can't, I can't see doing it any other way. I well, can't well, see doing well, it. Yeah. When you listen to an album like Versus, which, by the way, I just want to put this on the record because I had to go Google this to make sure I wasn't crazy. But I remember when it came out. And by the way, I got the CD that had like the full cover with the with the with the nice. Uh, 
pull out with like the little plastic piece that was like the limited edition. But what people don't know is at the time, and, and David, you can tell me if I'm wrong, it was the fastest selling record ever. And I remember yeah. when I say 10 was big, like verses came out and people went bananas. And Dan Beck, who was again, your product manager at the time came on the show and said, where, you know, Eddie was like, do we do Rolling Stone? Do we do this? He's like, let's just put in some local ragtime. It made you guys so fucking cool. And when that record came out, it was the biggest thing. What was that like? Because it was the first record with you, like really on the drums, on the actual record itself. Well, it was, and Stone asked me that. He, actually, on the last day when we were leaving the studio, he said, so you're, you know, you blah, blah, blah. Uh, you, you know, you've got songs. On, and it just, it struck me weird, but... It, it was just like um, I was really proud of the record. You know, we worked our asses off, and and um, I was really proud of what you know I contributed to it. I think more than anything, I was proud of the fact that um, when <laughs> they were filling out, you know, like who did what, like the the names under the titles. Mm-hmm. Um, my song was first, and and I. I said, no, it's not my song. I mean, I wrote this thing, just like all these other, you know, but um, I didn't write it to get my name under the, it's all, you know, we all took it where we took it. And that, and so the, the whole album, that and the Vitology record, I don't know if they're still this way, but under the song titles is everybody's name, mm-hmm. you know? Nice. Uh, I felt like the, the Pearl Jam was really a band yeah. at that mm-hmm. point. So, so you, you can hear that because um, is it, isn't that record recorded pretty much live? I mean, isn't it mostly live what you're hearing on, on the stuff? Cause I mean, obviously our drummer Paul talks about it all the time. And I know that you're uh, like this too, that you hate the quantized bullshit that is out now, but yeah. isn't that an example yeah. of a band that got in a room and played what you're hearing? Like, you know, yeah. And we, we actually didn't purposefully, we didn't finish the song writing. We just had these song ideas and then 10 30 in the morning, we'd start working and by lunch I'd track the drums those guys would do overdubs and and Brendan mixed so fast we'd be listening after dinner wow it's amazing so yeah, do you think that amazing. has something to do with it like uh, the lightning in a bottle as far as your chemistry you guys are having a good day you went in you played well Brendan caught that Brendan yeah. O'Brien by the yeah. way a great producer we, yeah amazing <laughs> we didn't always have a good day you know actually very very rarely does Pearl Jam ever did Pearl Jam ever have a good day and what do you mean by that? Like, what do you mean they rarely had a good day? I mean, we were so different. And uh, like you think, okay, you're sitting at a dinner and, you know, my manager looks over and Eddie says to me, hey, there's a reason we're at an Italian restaurant. And my man- the band manager says, you know, you're wanting to let you know you're a member of the band now, blah, 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 blah. Okay. And then under his breath, he says, oh, yeah, and the record went gold. <laughs> now you think that'd be a good day, huh? Yeah. <laughs> no, that was just another day. Well, it wasn't one, celebrated. One, one of the things Actually, I read really. was saying that Actually, it was the opposite of celebrated. It was just like. So do you whatever. think it's like an abusive it's relationship? Usual. Like because it seems to me like where Eddie Vedder is like an anti-rock star. It, a lot of the things that I read, you know, again, this is coming from my childhood memories is that you kind of just embrace being in one of the biggest bands, which like, I mean, I know I would, I'd be like, pardon me, sir. Where's the great Poupon? And meanwhile, like, Eddie's like, fuck that shit. Let's, let's fuck with Ticketmaster and frogs. Well, yeah, it it really didn't have, I mean, I think what I did is I didn't do anything to become famous. I didn't take the route of saying, I don't want to be famous, which at that particular time was, perfect way to become very famous. <laughs> so I didn't say that. I didn't say any of that shit and I wouldn't play it. I just enjoyed playing music and No, dude, listen. Uh, I, I'm not saying that. You, no, 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 no. I'm not tripping at all. I, I'm just saying as far as the, and, and the whole And Eddie's the kind of guy that like you just said it. He, he gets off, he, he finds out, you know, you sell a bunch of records and he's like, oh, man, my dog died. Like, how, like, what, how do you, what, what's going to make that guy smile? Like, so, okay, let's talk about it. So Eddie Vedder, why is he not a peach? Like he seems like he has 
so many things he could be happy about, but instead he seems to be upset and just to constantly find things. Like, is he like that as a person? You said you guys like started no. off as a tight unit no. band. I didn't, I don't know about how he is now, but no, he, he's not like that as a person. He's a very talented, incredibly gifted. Um, I mean, you know, look where, where he's, what he's become, you know? And I mean, he earned that. So uh, no, he's, he's incredible, but no, he, there was plenty of happiness. It just wasn't presented. It wasn't allowed. Mm. Why? So, what you know? do you mean it wasn't allowed? Yeah. Well, maybe you know, to avoid being becoming complacent, maybe I or keep moving well, forward. You know, to have his to have the music be believed. Yeah. Right. So it was all part of the image. Well, no, I mean, no. He meant he meant it. It was him. It, the persona and and him were, uh, you know, I mean he made a commitment to, to be it. So, um, hmm. no, there, there was a lot of joy, but the, the, it just wasn't shared. You know, the, the, do you think, do you think that, that Eddie was, was, I hope it is now. I hope it is now. It looks like it more is now. Do you think but, that Eddie was playing a character almost of, of like the rock star he wanted to be this Jim Morrison. He kind of, because I read an interview saying, I don't know if it was Jeff or stone said that I was scared of Eddie up until like two years ago or something like that. Um, like, and now like maybe hopefully he's mellowed out, but do you think that he used to think like, maybe I needed to sleep on my dead aunt's grave, like Edgar Allan Poe to be taken seriously? Um, hmm. No, no. Just like anybody else in that industry, just had to kiss the right ass. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I mean, back in the nineties, I don't know how it is now. But, um, and, and Eddie was an exceptionally well-studied Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> he, when he met someone that was important, he knew what to say that would make a difference and make him, yeah, he was just a really incredible, incredibly gifted, uh, I guess, networker. <laughs> so before yeah. we go on too much with the Pearl Jam, he's a fucking singer. That's it. Yeah. He's a great, <laughs> fucking singer. He's a great, yeah. great singer, great front man, and um, and I, you know, it was it was an incredible experience. Uh, you know, when I see old videos and stuff, it was, an, it was. I'm really proud to have been part of what motivated him into being what he was back then. Because I mean, I don't think the band would have been so exciting if it, if, it, if they had a, the, any of the drummers that he chose for that band. And that's the big thing. You, know, you think it's, it was like a symposium amongst all of you guys and the fact that you're all so different <laughs> and that it's like one of those, like, you know, you get in a room like Plato with all the different thinking minds and then you come out with Animal? <laughs> I, think, I think, you know, I saw, one day I saw um, Candlebox with Dave Cruzen on video, YouTube, and, and and it just struck me. It was like, wow, shit. They never wanted to be an exciting fucking hard-driven rock band. They didn't want that. That's not what they were supposed to be. Oops. Oops. So that's what I think happened. You know, I think basically, because I look at cruising and I look at the way that, that Matt Cameron plays and performs with the band and... Uh, and Jack Irons, and I mean, they they just don't drive a band at all. I mean, it, the, it's well, it's it, very it's different not. because when you see you, uh, it's it's one of those things where you go see those old performances, and not to liken you to guys at the time, but like you look more like Dave Grohl than you look like a guy just sitting there go, just playing drums, like filling in. You know what I mean? Like you're hitting drums, you're getting up, you're standing on your stool, your fucking hairs everywhere, and and I say that with total. Uh, one of the things I liked about Dave Grohl is not even his playing as much as just his stage presence. The fact that like when you listen to him on a record, it sounds like he's breaking sound city studios. Like, you know what I mean? And that's one of the things that I feel like I I like about both of you guys from that time period is that you're just drummers that when I listen to it on the record, your energy transfers. And I completely see that because when I did see Pearl Jam with Matt Cameron, guy's an amazing drummer. He's an amazing drummer, but he's going, he's going through the rudiments, literally. Whereas when you see some drummers, you play with reckless abandon. And, and it's Mm -hmm. one of those things that's really refreshing because especially with those older bootlegs, I mean, I know they've like turned into this grateful dead band with a million different set lists, but you guys were (laughs) were riffing like back in the day. And I remember listening to a lot of those jams and you guys had a cohesiveness 
Um, and there was an electricity that certainly, I don't want to say the band doesn't have anymore, but it's like much more thought out than when you guys were younger dudes in the early nineties, just fucking wearing yeah. flannel and murdering it on stage. Yeah, there was a risk. There, there, there were a lot of risks that we were, I mean, it was definitely, there were some jazz improv odysseys in front of a capacity crowd, <laughs> but um, we were, we were courageous with each other. And I, I really, um, I mean, it, it was, it was a lot of work, but I really enjoyed driving the band. I mean, I, I knew that if I went somewhere that Stone would go with me and everyone else would be there too. And, um, and really that, that jam element that we used to just make a lot of shit up and those, those like porch and all these things, we would just go out or just at any point, um, it, it kind of validated that stupid name. Yeah. So do you think like, and I'm, uh, not a lot of people have this perspective, but as a band, you mentioned that initially, especially you guys were super tight and you had this cohesiveness and you could do those jams. Do you think as Pearl Jam became this really larger than life, you know, biggest band on the planet, did that become more difficult? And were you almost forced as a band to, to fit into a different kind of mold or were you able to maintain that freedom? See, that, that was the cool thing is no, I mean, from when we started, uh, in 14 of us in the band to when um, I got fired, that was like one movement. You know, we didn't graduate to private planes yet. We didn't, you know, we were still doing it the same way, just as, as often as we could and, and for as long as we could in the best way that we could. And, and uh, it, it all the way up, it, you know, actually that last tour was the first time that I started to feel like we'd proven it. That we, you know, and I was really looking forward to the Vitalogy tour because to me, like my drumming on that record, um, I mean, I put so much into compositionally into my parts and, 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 and playing and, um, you know, I was really looking forward. That's why I love that. Uh, you even played guitar on that record. Wasn't it Immortality or something like that? Um, I played bass and guitar on I Davinita. Okay. I, uh, yeah. I was going to say as one of those, I, I, I had it written down. I had an eye in my head, yeah. but that's all right. No, no, but I but, think that's but, great yeah. that you guys could like get, get in a studio and, 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 you know, as a Pearl Jam fan, I remember listening to 10, loving it then getting verses and going, Holy shit. And then verses was the first album that came out. And I was like, I don't know how to feel about this. And then like, I had to like drink it in a little bit. And like, you know, obviously looking back now, we're talking 25 years or whatever. Um, it, it literally was such an amazing record. I mean, you know, uh, Spin the Black Circle is just like straight up rock and roll where you have Better Man is a song that gives me goosebumps. You know, just like Nothing Man, another song with man in the title. Um, you know I mean? <laughs> and, and you guys have so, and, and, there, and that's a record that's really so much of a journey Whereas, you know, Pearl Jam on 10 and, and Versus was clearly like a rock band in a room just like taking, taking names. Like Versus was so much more composed and I think produced in a cool way. Not like overproduced, like a record produced, but like just like you guys thought about it. And it took me as a peon, you know, at 14 or whatever to not just be like, oh my God, he's yelling something. But like these lyrics actually mean something. And like, can you hear all the different instrumentation going on versus just a band raging. Right. Well, it's a trip, you know, because that, you're talking about the Versus record, yeah? No, I'm talking that, about Vitology when I finally got okay, Vitology. Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, you said Versus, so. Maybe, well, I, sure. It's probably because I'm a stoner, and I, my mom always yells at me that I'm sitting here smoking the thing, and I'll be I'll like, forgive you. It, you know, <laughs> it's funny because, like, it, speaking of Guns N' Roses, like, we played a show with him in with Bumblefoot in 2007, and my dad walks up to uh, Ron and goes, Hey, so like, do you like really do this? Like, you know, do you have a band and all that? I'm like, dad, he's in, he's in Guns N' Roses. And then it's like, you know, I'll be on like an interview with like the drummer, like literally for the first band I ever paid to buy a ticket for that you guys gave me my money back. Um, and, and like, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm talking about like, hey, I really loved you on that album fucking Far Beyond Driven. You, you were great. That double bass thing you did was awesome. <laughs> Are you smoking weed now? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was too early, but apparently not. No, my arthritis is terrible. 
Vitalogy record, it, it, I mean, like uh, Tremor Christ, I played that drum part once. Um, Immortality, uh, the idea came up at noon. I was done tracking at three. Jeez. Wow, uh, that's incredible. Do you think we that he was just trying to put the money in the bank so you guys can, you know, less recoupable funds? No. No, the, that, that record was, in my opinion, um, unbelievably it was an incredible record and you'll never hear it um the vitality the record that was put out was changed drastically so it wouldn't be a successful record what, what, interesting what, what how so mean? yeah talk about that mm-hmm. we need to know what, more what about do you mean that. by that like what, what sorts of things changed Honestly, the, the the mixes um became less radio friendly on the radio friendly stuff um and the order was changed and some songs were taken out and some really like, you know, it's just strange. The timing between the, the songs, it doesn't play good as a record. You know, it's so just wait, an uncomfortable. walk into the studio and go like, you know what, this goes, this works way was, too well. Let's, can we make this play? Like, no, it was finished. It wasn't in the can when I got fired. And mm-hmm. Eddie went down and this, the band, I, I it's my understanding that he went and made the decisions about the finalization of that record. You know, that record was, you know, put out in kind of a lackluster way and, and, and just, yeah, it was, it was, I have a cassette of the Vitology record as I expected it to be put out. And it's really? wow. unbelievable. Yeah. We should probably play Pretty that much. on the show. Sounds cool. So awesome. Yeah. 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 <laughs> wow that's some coveted material did, did axel ever let yeah. you leave the studio with like a demo from that day and say go home and work at this like do you have like, a whole mess i've got of i've got i've got dats of my alternative mixes of wma and i would just go in at night and flip the switches on what are they gonna do <laughs> wow well apparently they followed did you, well, did you see them follow the super fan that released all the Chinese democracy tapes? And like, they actually showed them and banned them from life from a Guns N' Roses venue. Like, uh, and made them like cry outside. He's like, I came from another state. <laughs> so they could ban no, you. I've got, no, I've got all, uh, you know, I had all the rough mixes from the Versus record, all those cassettes. And they actually, I recorded every rehearsal from the first one to the day we left for the studio for the versus record because I was wow. I, the only way I could hear anybody was to put on headphones and mic everything. So wow, mm-hmm. yeah. So I just ran a dad all the time, and then I'd go home and work all night on what I thought should happen here and there, and then go back. and It was cool in the way that all I had to do to you know, everything was so loose and, and Stone and I would get together before everybody else showed up and he'd have a new riff and we'd just mess with it. And hopefully somebody would wander in and grab their instrument and start playing. And that's, and if that didn't happen, then we would talk for a while and somebody would try to do it. We just try to introduce things and spark something. Well, what was and the environment like? like? I mean, cause weren't you guys locked like in a studio, music. like in Seattle or something like that, like locked in a studio, like, like how did it yeah, start? We were, we were in our, seven foot ceiling basement rehearsal room that was just one of the worst acoustic places ever and i'd had i had a little kit and everybody had a little amp and um yeah it was the basement of the galleria potato head and we would just go down there and and just just bang out stuff and then brendan showed up and went wow you got some good ideas and that was that Wow. <laughs> yeah, and then we went in the studio, and and he got sounds and uh, got drum takes, and then everyone tracked to my you know tracked stuff to my drum takes, and that was that. Yeah, it's an interesting way to make a record. Yeah, lost our all song. I had in my headphones for most of the songs was a click track and my drums. So so it started with you, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, even though I didn't know the song, we didn't have songs yet. Wow. So. Hmm. Yeah, I would stop and I'd say, oh, that felt like a song. And then. <laughs> well, it's actually funny because when we worked on the song, The Garden of Earth, and, and David and I have done a bunch of songs together, but that no one's heard because, you know, same thing as Axl Rose. I don't release anything. Um, but um, we did a <laughs> yeah, song called exactly the, the, the Earth. Yeah, totally. Uh, we, did, we did a song called The Garden of Earthly Delights. And uh, David just um, 
you know, it was such a pleasure to work with you, but you did some stuff like you did some fills in the middle. I remember coming back and going, we didn't do anything there. And then like Corey and I then recreating the song to your fills because we're like, okay, well, if he thinks there needs to be something there. And when we made it sound deliberate because you played it very deliberately, but we're like, we didn't know there was anything there, David. And I kind of, I really respected the fact that like, first off, the song's like a nine minute song and you play just hot pocket. You groove so hard that we basically have just guitar silliness. But there's a few times you do some really cool fills or some change up stuff. And like, we, we were like, you know what? We're just going to give it to him because like you did some things in that song and you took some artistic liberties. And I feel like you added a lot. By a lot more than I guess a lot of drummers working with remote producers by just speaking through your drums and saying, you know what, I hear this here and this is what I'm going to do and fuck you, Ben, just make it work. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's also, you know, I, I, I knew instantly just from the music that I was playing too, young lady, amazing stuff, um, that, you know, I, I trusted that what, what I thought was there, what I played to that wasn't there yet would be. Mm -hmm. yeah and it, it ended up being a song is just I, I, I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it really great stuff I think that's amazing like having a, like that level of intention really does change the energy of the song because like I come from kind of the other side of the music world where often I'm playing what's already written you know I grew up with classical music yeah. and even with tracking violin stuff it's pretty rare that I'm involved in the songwriting process I'm kind of like the top mm -hmm. layer you know, obviously this is different, but in a lot of projects, even, you know, with Starset, most of the stuff is written and I show up to play it, you know? So there's an element of energy that I can put into it, but I think it makes all the difference. Yeah. When you've, you're adding something to it or you have that level of intention that comes from you and not from something that's been handed to you, you know? Well, I, I'll tell you when I was listening, when I got the final mix and, and put it on and was just like, oh, thank God. It was like a, somebody just poured cold water over my hot eyeballs. It, was <laughs> really, it sounded so good. And it was like, okay, I know this riff. Okay. It sounds the way. And then just the, the, the depth of, uh, you know, like the painting, you the, the, the picture you painted with, with, the placement and the, just where everything was, it was just instantly, I was like, okay. And then when I, I was able to listen into it and I heard, um, <laughs> you know, the soloing is just next level, but I heard the soloing affected by, you know, by what I had done as well. Mm -hmm. and, and to be able to hear it all and to hear it play out, it was just, you know, I, I actually only listened to the first half of it, and then I stopped it and just went, eh. You know, I'm not, not, not going to listen to how I feel about it, too. <laughs> yeah, you might need a break in the middle of that, that one. That's an intense one, for sure. <laughs> it's just great. It, I really enjoyed listening to it. And, it, you know, I, I like cranking it up when, my, when there's people golfing and stuff. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. But every, and everyone that, that has heard the song, it's like they, they aren't turned off by the, the musicality. Which is that? That's well. Let's let's me, go on record as saying this. So one of the things that's great about having you on that song is so Paul Lorenzo, who plays the drums on most of it, and then we had Jason Costa on another song, are both ridiculous players. I don't want to say they overplay, but they're crazy. You know, Mike Portnoy all over the place. You know, like let's uh, you know Palmer level drums. Next, next and, level. Yeah, next level shit. And the thing I like about you, David, is that you just fucking find a groove, you own it, and I, I mean, you can, you can see, you can hear it in your playing that like you're just fucking into it. And with that song, because of the backbeat, um, I remember um, Conrad, who plays on it, saying, dude, this sounds like Moby Dick. You know what I mean? And Conrad <laughs> is like one of the most insane guitar players. And we, we have also Rusty Cooley, may I add, on that song, and Jimmy yeah. Bell, who are two of the fastest guitar players on the planet, nevertheless Conrad. So it went from like, all right, let's do a song to like, well, we have the Olympic, like we, everyone's the Michael Phelps of guitar here. So like <laughs> we basically, I, so anyone that listens to it and goes, it's guitarded, like, yes, we know. Rusty Cooley and Jimmy <laughs> Bell together sounds like you sped up a tape. It's fucking bananas. And for those people that love it, cool. And if not, like listen to Dave's drums because they're awesome. And I mean, and the thing well, is you can hear that it sounds like you recorded it in a crazy ass fucking room. It's so huge. <laughs> and Corey did a great job. That was one of the first things he said to me um, when um, you listened to it was, I, I really appreciate 
how good this sounds because you sent me email after email, make sure you put this amount of pre-delay and blah, blah, blah. blah. And I'm like, don't yeah, worry. Yeah, I know. You said, don't worry. He's got it. We got it. Don't worry about it. I just, I can really appreciate some good room mics. You know what I mean? Yeah, right on, man. <laughs> well, I've got, a, I'm working on a, this new thing now with Townsend Labs. So you'll be getting some interesting things to work with. Ooh. I don't know if you know that company, but man, that's some next level shit right there. Can you, can you, you check it out. Yeah. Can, can you, can you tell us about it? Um, uh, is it like the location? <laughs> is it like the location where you're not allowed to know? Actually, well, they're microphones, right? And they're, I mean, I've, I've been blessed to own serial number 11 Neumann Longbody U47. You know, I've been blessed to own a matched pair of, well, actually six consecutive 49s. And you know what I mean? I've had some mics. <laughs> yeah. And these things actually Jesus, record... I thought my match pair of C12s was cool, but oh, no. Yeah. I had consecutive C24, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, it's, um, it's, like I said, I was blessed to, to have those for a while, and this company is making a mic, and I don't, I, I still feel weird saying it, but it's true, that models these mics unbelievable it, it records wow. uh, is, it like uh, the Ke- is it like the kemper of microphones in that like you just like dial it i want sm57 like yeah actually i, I want to say yes but i'm not I, I wasn't as blown away with those things so i can't say yes i mean it, it's next level and it's not expensive and they're unbelievable they got lights in them wow that's amazing <laughs> lights, lights is a big deal for me i've always, I've always sold cory like the whole reason i bought a c24 board in my first place which i don't have anymore in my studio the digit design is a giant board i think jay-z's got like three of them in his basement it's because they had all these flying <laughs> faders and a bunch of lights and it looked like the mere space station and as a guitar player i was like i don't know what this does but it looks important yeah. And little did I know, it's totally unimportant, and it's just a bunch of lights. But it made oh, it yeah. happen. <laughs> so are, are you are you working with them on the development, or are you just um, actually they are well developed. I actually been using them. Um, I got the new DW kit over here. It's unreal. And um, what kind of DW kit is it? Totally custom. Do you, are you using a twenty three inch kick oh, drum? No. Can we talk no, about I'm that? A, I'm, a, I'm a maple finish ply guy all the way. Okay. But I do, I am using a, a special uh, grain pattern that allows the little toms to have as much depth as the big ones, because I still like having a puny little tan right in front of me. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> but it's, it's, yeah, it's a nickel, uh, nickel chrome sparkle, just, you know, regular off the shelf DW kit. Love it. I don't do, I don't, I don't need anything special. Their drums sound the way I want them to when uh-huh. I use them. If not, then I use the crappy Ludwigs or some other drums. Crappy drums sound amazing. So I can only imagine. Yeah. What <laughs> yeah. Well, you did it. You, man, you, you blew my Well, mind. it's about the player too. I mean, no matter what instrument you have, if you have bad technique, I, I, it doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's the, it's also the point, you know, if, if there was no point for those drums, they'd sound like shit, no matter how good they sounded. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. It was really fun. I will say this. It was fun for Corey and I to go back and kind of like recreate, like, okay, if David's doing this, what do we do? Because you, because we did the song multiple times and you, and it started off as like a four minute song and then ended up like a seven minute song. Now it's like a nine minute song. It's absolutely crazy. And um, you did a, an amazing a bunch of takes and we said, well, do a fill or whatever. And again, like you just did this random fill that we really did make deliberate, but, but having to reverse engineer what you did um, was really fun. And it really gave uh, the song a lot of feel. And um, you know, where Paul's a great drummer, like it's such a breath of fresh air, especially for the guitar players that play on the song to have such a backbeat Moby Dick style. Well, and there's a thing about like, you know, the, the, shredding the, the the that i hear so much soul in those in the in the stringed instrument parts on that song i, I you know it's like i'm not a fan of shred those there's there's so much taste and so much i mean there, there's soul in that music and and that doesn't happen very often and i'm really i just want to stress again well done creating a a, a piece of music that Thank you. that allowed that, that brought soul out of that kind of 
gifted. I, I don't know what it would be like to be able to play that well. Right. <laughs> Neither do we. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, we, that's why we have Shabon put down all the tracks first, and then we just go, okay, what oh, do we do? No, oh, but I'm like, like a, I'm such the eternal know. critic, though. Like, talk about not celebrating success. That's like as a violinist, you're just played with that for life. It's like, oh, well, it, it, this could have been better. Success, <laughs> you know, you're like all, never happy about it. <laughs> can we all just say again, because um, we weren't on air when we said it, but congratulations to Siobhan because Star Set has hit 2 billion streams. That's got to be at least like $7, I think, or something like that coming to you, Siobhan. Uh, you can ask Dustin. Uh, uh, two billion, two billion streams. Like, I don't know if that's a lot, but that seems like a lot. Oh, it is. Yeah. No, but it's You're fascinating to me because... Were you in yeah. Forbes magazine? Yeah. Well, yeah, we were. Yeah. They, we they were read like a little two minute. <laughs> no, but of course they used this photo that was like, you know, typical day where I had like two hours of sleep and we had just played like a full day of radio stuff. So I'm just like, which is my good side? And my eyes are like crossing. <laughs> no, but it's amazing. I mean, I think about this stuff, you know, and especially on behalf of Dustin, like when you're the front man and you're the person that's like the kind of the creative head of a project, it's so interesting to me how, you know, the things go that go into like writing, you know, maybe the difference between writing the music that you want to write and write, you know, balancing it with writing the music that people want to hear and how you get to that level of like what right. makes you a successful band. And I'm mm. kind of out of a lot of that process, you know, because I'm more on the performing Does side. Does that bum you really... out? Does that like find out like that you're still making them that like some part of you, you get to go enjoy it, but like really somebody else is like driving your car? Well, I mean, I think it's a lot of pressure when you are the front person that's that's doing a lot of the music writing because you know once you get to a certain level, I think things do change. And obviously, I can't speak for Star well, I mean, well, What, what happens? What happens if like he loses? If, if you're out in Germany, right, and he can't find the proper hair product, and then he can't look <laughs> as dreamy as he needs to on stage, is that going to affect the live album? No, but you know what? I think a lot of people think that image and how you present yourself is the most important thing. And it matters a lot for the live show. But when I what I've learned from traveling, you know, to places like Russia, where a lot of people don't even speak English, they they really find meaning in the music itself. And people that have never seen you, you know, they're, they're being drawn to you by listening to your music, not necessarily seeing photos of you. Are you sure the that they haven't show. like they're not secretly fans of my so-called life and that Jared Leto? Um, <laughs> just kind of reminds them of because i feel like okay so i'm not saying he looks like jared leto but like as as someone that like love has a man crush on jared leto other than like the fight club jared leto but like the the, the dreamy jared leto the one yeah. that sings all pretty like i when i see when i saw you guys because you know i, I I'm, I'm still learning the majesty of star set i had no idea how big of a deal you were you know, like I, your mom told me I should have listened to Anne Marie. But I, <laughs> well, I, I my know. mom likes to embellish a lot of things. So. Yeah, but the thing is, is that does does Dustin does Dustin know how many people love him? I think he has an idea of it. I think he tries not to engage in it too much because at the end of the day, what matters to him the most, which I really respect, is the music. Like he's an incredibly thoughtful lyricist and melody writer, and the 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 stuff that he comes up with is he's a I think really heartfelt and yeah and meaningful. He really and I is. I, I give him a hard time, but he, really, your band is fucking genius, and that's why you're doing so well so fast because you know what I mean. Like that doesn't happen to a lot of bands. I mean, look at our band, Lost Symphony. Me and Corey are eating ramen every single night, and he's calling me. He goes, "You got beef? I only got chicken." this week and we're fucking so, trading off no but it's amazing all the things that go into it like we were talking earlier rob about mixes like how one mix would have been more successful than the other and i mean i listened to him like on the bus you know going back and forth on mixes and mastering and all this stuff and how like incredibly particular he is and he is it helps that he really does have the best but does he try to sandbag your band because he's eddie vetter and he just decides that he doesn't want things to be cool or flow because he just has to have the opposite. No, it's quite the, it's quite the opposite. He is like yeah. he is incredibly thoughtful and strategic about you know the way he wants yeah. things to go, and I respect yeah. that because that's a talent I don't have. You know, I can play the music and I love adding what I can add, but in terms of being like a leader, yeah, he's incredible. Yeah, and that's that's my, my, one nerdy, my one nerdy comment will just be like the low end in production on the Star Set Records is like far yeah. none, some of the best. It just hits you, <laughs> hits you right in the chest. <laughs> Well, that's one thing about Eddie, too, that, you know, I will say as far as being the, you know, he wasn't the, the leader of the band when the band, when we left, we were a band. Mm -hmm. And slowly, you know, he took the reins and, and um, you know, it's not a, it's not, I mean, kudos to him. I mean, it's a brave move. So was he, was he stage two or stage three lead singer's disease when you got fired? <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> last time I saw him, um, and where was Axel Rose, by the way, when you saw him? Was he stage four B by the time? Um, Axel, uh, no, he was. This is he. He didn't have his hair plugs yet. So. so he, so so he was in remission. He was in remission. Oh, <laughs> he was in his dungaree jacket phase. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good face. <laughs> yeah. and it was amazing. There were so many amazing things. I, I, like the, the guy who Axel hired to put together this unbelievable guitar rig because he decided he wanted to play guitar or something um, was Billy, who gave me a cassette. He's like, these are my songs. I'm trying to put together this thing. It's called a perfect circle, blah, blah, blah. And like, so all these, like, it was really an interesting time. All the stuff that came out of that little Guns N' Roses camp thing because you know when i left josh bruce came in and then josh started working with billy and then perfect circle thing formed and really cool stuff came out of all that really go cool. oh oh and then, oh. And then chinese <laughs> democracy wait, 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 ben let him talk what were you, what were you gonna say because before i forget Corey and and you or perhaps someone else i don't know but you did do something really cool to my drums at the end that made me sound a lot better than I am. So thank you very much. There was a fill. I wish I knew exactly where it was, but it's wicked. And I know you slid the kick drum in there because I didn't, I, I wouldn't have done well, that. One thing I did, I went back and, and layered in some orchestral percussion over some of the really cool. Oh cool, yeah. No, I knew that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you did something with my kick drum that I know I didn't play that actually, that, huh. that, yeah, that's a that, that, thing to do. As an arrangement, I think it's so it awesome about Corey. He makes you prettier and doesn't even tell you what he did. And I don't remember what yeah, I did, well, so <laughs> it all worked yeah, out. He just, did what he, he just did what he had to do. That's all. And I appreciate it. Yeah, man. All, I would have never thought you had a beard. I would have never thought you had a beard. <laughs> you don't know what to say to oh, uh, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, <laughs> Corey, Corey's a bass player before he's a mixing artist, so he's not used to compliments, David. He's used. He's used to like looking. Oh, at, he's used to like having you look at him like he fucked up. <laughs> I'm not saying shit. <laughs> <laughs> let's not let's not bring up bass players on this podcast. No, it's bass, the bass going is, so well. Bass is so important. I mean, a lot of my friends, a lot of what I've learned recently is just like like jazz music. I have a lot of friends in Miami that play in in jazz groups, and the the level of bass playing that I've seen is insane. And that's oh. like what makes the band, in my opinion, in yeah. so many cases. It's like if you've got like a really <laughs> sick bass player. That's incredible. Okay, keep going. <laughs> enough, I never, I never, ever had Jeff Amon in my monitors or my headphones ever. What? I didn't know what he was doing until I heard it on the album. Oh, wow. <laughs> but but I, do you like it now because, that you heard it? Um, because it, um, yeah, no, I, I, I yeah, but I, yeah, great stuff. I see, he's, a good, a he's a good bassist, to my knowledge. Yeah, he's very creative. But but so but basically, you were the back <laughs> you were you were the backbone to the point where you were like, "Fuck putting anyone else in my monitor. They're just going to play to me just like the record." Well, eh, see, that was the thing. Is during the verse versus record, everyone was still kind of searching a little bit, you know. So it was it was important for me to to drive, even if I was just driving myself, you know, mm -hmm. for those songs. Uh, you know, it was just a click track and a tape machine. So. Mm -hmm. And did you play all the? Uh, did you play all the ten stuff like Dave Cruzen, or did you come up with your own official like your? That was the coolest. Actually, I, I had a radio show uh, with a friend of mine named Chris. It was Chris and Dave's music we like like show, and, and people would call, and if we liked it, we'd play it, and if we didn't, we wouldn't. And so, uh, I had gotten the call about the Pearl Jam thing, and we dug up all the Mother Love Bone shit and all the the Pearl Jam sampler thing, and and we tried to listen to it, and I didn't get. 15 seconds through any of the songs and and then we listened, tried to listen to a little mother love bone i couldn't deal with that either so um i called <laughs> my, uh, my partner chris said well have you ever been to seattle i said no he said well it's a free trip to seattle said, oh. <laughs> and that was pretty much the thing and when i talked to uh, you know i i called and i wasn't I wasn't really sure that I even was going to go up and uh, Eddie and Jeff just happened to be at the office. And so I asked them, you know, do you want me to learn these songs or do you want me to just come up and play? And it's just come up and play. So that's, <clears throat> that's what I did. Actually, um, 
I can count on both hands the number of times I've listened to a song on the 10 record in its entirety. And on that note, you've been 2020 because I want David to come back. We're going to have you do a second half of this because there's so many more things I want to ask you. Because if we go on about this, I'm going to talk for 20 minutes. No, because you want to know what? This is how we're going to end it now because now you guys have to wait to see what he's going to say because there's so oh, much more oh, that we want to know. Talk wow. about, we're going to talk about Bernard Fowler. We're going to talk about the, the uh, uh, working with the singer from Supertramp. who blew my mind, taught me a lot of stuff. I mean, there's yeah. so many people I worked with. Billy Cox, Eddie Kramer, Noel Redding. You know what's, funny? You know what's funny is actually before we end this thing, I actually saw Billy Cox. Um, I'll show you on this wall if you see um, that Hendrix. It says um, uh. Hendrix smash hits. And I had um, Billy Cox sign it because it was the Hendrix thing. And he goes, you know I didn't play on this, right? And I said, <laughs> I said Billy, you should be happy I even know who the fuck you are, man. Like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> like, I didn't play on this. I'm like, neither did Joe Satriani or Dweezil Zappa, bro, but they signed it. Like, what the fuck? And on that note, will you yeah. stick around and do a second half of the show with us, David? Sure. So we'll see you guys again soon. 2020 part two with David Aberziz. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or were nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.